This is Daniel, your host of Indigenous Words and Ideas, Why the Podcast. And today I have a special co-host, Sandra Yellowhorse, and I will let you introduce yourself. Thank you, Daniel. My name is Sandra Yellowhorse. I am Dene uh, from Gallup, New Mexico. I am a Navajo citizen and a Dene mother. I currently reside in Auckland, New Zealand, and I'm pursuing my PhD with Tapuna Wananga, uh, the School of Maori and Indigenous Education uh, at the University of Auckland. So I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you. So today we wanted to kind of maybe explore some of the stuff we've talked about in regards to our comparison experiences coming from the U.S. and now living in Aotearoa and also during the, this COVID time as well. And so I'm wondering if um, maybe you want to, maybe we'll start off with that and maybe share a little bit of what are some of the things that um, you've been observing at this time in regards to like just the different context. And so we're seeing different things come out and the way that it's impacting Indigenous communities as well as the like the general kind of popular perceptions. Right. So um, we've discussed this quite a lot that there has been such a kind of a, a shocking experience moving from the United States to Aotearoa, New Zealand. I think right now what's happening in the United States really kind of amplifies not only the current disparities the Navajo Nation and, and tribal communities are facing right now, but it really kind of showcases the long history of colonization upwards of 500 years that communities have and indigenous people have been um, fighting against. Um, coming to New Zealand and, and working with uh, Maori and indigenous people here, we all share kind of this common thread of uh, colonial violence. Um, those, that's a, a, something that resonates between our different communities and our different um, kind of histories. In the U.S., I think um, what we're seeing now is kind of the amplified ripple effects of how that colonialism is still played out in terms of the treaties not being honored, in terms of the ongoing colonial violence through different types of structures within our educational systems, our political systems, uh, the uh, inadequacies within our tribal government, which was created as a, a colonial endeavor to um, designate people to sign oil leases. So this is all connected to a long history of colonialism. And we're seeing that right now uh, just very much amplified with the, the current um, coronavirus and COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I think moving to New Zealand, um, it's really interesting because there's still that, that history of colonialism here. I think that the conversations around colonialism are much more discussed they're certainly discussed more frequently within academic spaces. And we have our indigenous relatives, our, our Maori and Pacific relatives who have done all of that heavy work and really pushing forward those conversations and forcing them, forcing the government and the public here to address colonialism here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, back in the United States, there's still so much denial that that's an issue. People don't want to talk about history. They say don't live in the past. 
um, it doesn't help us. They have a really hard time connecting that history to their current living disparities, their current um, inequalities. And that's a conversation um, that we need to be having back home in our communities because it's so apparent. You know, coming over here, I was just like, whoa, like there's visibility where, you know, I grew up in, in Utah and there we have the Navajo Nation is, covers part of there as well. But we have, you know, uh, Ute, Shoshone, Goshen, and Paiute also. And there's eight reservations in the state. Yet you wouldn't know that if, if you weren't like, you have to like look for it unless you're part of the community because there's just such an erasure, even like, uh, you know, awareness. And then I get here and it's just like, I could see Te Reo Maori like everywhere. <laughs> um, now, we could argue it's also tokenized and not privileged, um, but it is also still present, which was like a shock to me when I first came here. I was like, whoa, like I can look up a place name and there, you know, there it is. I can find out the indigenous name for the place where I felt like Mutat was just so hard to, to even kind of gain that stuff. And so I'm always kind of balancing out like this comparison experience and also remembering like that there, obviously there is struggle here. It's just, it's slightly different. And I, and I like how you pointed out as well that you know this the pandemic has not necessarily caused the disparity but reveals like this ongoing thing and i also like i remember seeing online too some people saying oh you know people are um, upset about a lot of the things that they have to do now and they're like oh really like this is the first time you've had to do that and it's just like no people have been <laughs> dealing with these kinds of things for a long time and this is just kind of making it maybe worse, intensifying it, but also just revealing that it's there. But yeah, I don't know, did you have anything else on that? Right, you know, um, you're absolutely right. I think um, kind of just showing that those disparities have always been there. Right now, the way that the Navajo Nation is portrayed, especially in the mainstream media news, everyone's kind of, you know, fascinated. They're looking at Navajo Nation. You know, Navajo Nation has the highest rates per capita in the United States and that that they surpass New York and New Jersey in terms of looking at how small their population is with the amount of confirmed cases. There is a huge um, issue with COVID-19 on the Navajo Nation. We're not we're not disputing this, but the way that the media describes uh, this current pandemic and the way that they kind of um, portray Navajo at Navajo Nation as a, a hot spot um, uh, a place that's just completely ravaged. We know we know COVID is there, and kind of the rhetoric that they're using is that oh, it's because you know we have intergenerational homes. People live in family homes where there's lots of people. We have overcrowding. They're using those words overcrowding. Um, they don't have running water. I mean, they're really portraying us in a very negative light without looking at the structural inequalities that have created the conditions for a pandemic like this to happen. We're not looking at the systemic underfunding of our government and our healthcare systems. We're not looking at the ways that allotment and land um, issues, especially around uh, economic development have impeded Navajos from developing their own resources, economic resources on the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation is 171,000 kilometers, I believe, and there are only 13 grocery stores on the entire reservation. This is what creates the dependency for Navajo people to have to leave and go to border towns, border towns which are closing their their city limits off to Navajo people and denying them entry because they're trying to stop the spread now. 
And people want to blame Navajos for being poor. There is a whole system, there's a whole history that created this poverty and that benefits from it. This goes way back to the trading post era when Navajos were denied their, um, their livestock. We have the Livestock Reduction Act, which the government came in and said, oh, you're overgrazing your animals on the land. And they made up all that. They did not want Navajo people to be self-sufficient and self-reliant on their own resources. And so they, you know, this is a long history and it impacts us now where people were removed of their food source and they were forced to go into border towns to the trading post economy. And this is a history of capitalism. This is the way that capitalism has embedded it, itself in, in our um, communities. And so when people talk about you know, intergenerational homes, like they're to blame for this disparity. No, our intergenerational homes are what held our communities together since time immemorial. This is how we live as the Neh people with our extended kinship systems, with our family units. We live together as a unit. Capitalism is to blame for this system. This is, and this is more apparent now than ever in the United States when we're looking at in the era of Trump and how all of this economic stimulus is to benefit corporations where we can't even lock down an entire country because that's going to have an economic impact and it's convoluted with all these ideas and rhetoric of liberty, of freedom, of free choice and independence. This is capitalism. This is capitalism that promotes the economy of money, of dollar and profit over the well-being of human life. And this is nothing new that to indigenous people, we're very familiar with this framework and it's continuing to be appropriated on us in the way that the media portrays us as that our traditional life ways are somehow um, negatively impacting us and making us vulnerable to COVID. No, we are vulnerable to COVID because of the system of settler colonial capitalism that's ravaging us and that has been impacting us negatively for decades and centuries. You know, you can't have wealth without poverty, right? So like mm -hmm. there's this, they're, they're entangled and it's always this de deficit narrative that you talk about. Like it becomes so normalized in these societies that often is just taken for granted as that's how things have always been or that's normal. And it's like, no, these are creative systems, as you mentioned, and they didn't just come out of nowhere. And it's built on exploitation and, you know, one can't exist without the other. It's almost as if that, that old trope of, you know, like indigenous folks are, are, you know, quote unquote, you know, backwards and behind and primitive or whatever, and always in the way of so-called progress. Like, cause that, that's how the media continues to frame it. Oh, it's because of the way they live. And it's like, mm, wait a minute, <laughs> slow your roll. Like there's this whole other structure. And we've, something we've talked about as well is how it's a disabling system. And, um, you know, it disables people and communities but also beyond that as well, you know, the layers, uh, multiple uh, layers of exploitation on, on difference. I don't know if maybe that's something that maybe you could maybe just introduce a little bit of some of the insights you bring to help us kind of unpack this reality. Right. So I, th I think that, you know, people kind of, when they're thinking about Navajo kind of responses to COVID, um, and kind of Navajo responses to disparities as well, there's always this kind of binary view of like, 
US federal government, and then also Navajo Nation government. And so we always have to remember that Navajo Nation government was created as part of this system that you and I are talking about. It was created to have a formalized body of people to sign oil leases to exploit our land and waters um, in our communities. And so sometimes when people just are so unaware of that history of how our own tribal government was created, it was not created to serve the Neh people. You know, our, our traditional forms of government were localized, they were community, they were family units, and they were very small. And in many ways, that's how the chapter houses operate on that community level. However, they're kind of um, enveloped in under the umbrella of the larger Navajo Nation government. So when things like the Navajo, when, so when the Navajo Nation government is unable or not equipped to deal with some of the disparities that we see, there's always this view and this kind of rhetoric that Navajo uh, can't even come up with their own um, remedies to these situations. Okay, and this is some of the, I hear even other Navajo people say these types of things. And we have to remember that it's not Navajo people that can't come up with these ideas. This system is created to prevent us from coming up with resources to help ourselves through this institution. And so, you know, just kind of thinking against that binary and like realizing that we are colonized to blame ourselves, to blame ourselves for our own quote unquote failures or limitations when those were already very carefully planned, organized and created and, and imposed within our society, our Dine society. Right now, um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of this Navajo resentment coming from with our own, within our own community. People do not have confidence within their own community to handle disparities. And I'm having to um, continually respond to this. And to me, this deficit model, this implantation is part of the, the, the mechanisms of assimilation and colonialism. It's ongoing. It's part of that where you change what a society thinks about themselves and who they are and where their where their roots are. And I think if you know history, this is why the, part, the, the important part of history is, is, is fundamental. Because if we're able to understand, and if we come to the realization that we know that this form of government, that this system is intended not to help us, we are much more sympathetic towards ourselves and our relatives who are trying to create substantial change in our communities. You know, I think part of um, what my work seeks to do, because I look at the role of capitalism, settler colonialism, and assimilation within the identity formation of disability. So my work is centered around rethinking um, indigenous perspectives of neurodiversity and difference. Is it disability? You know, th that's what I write about. I think about that. Disability comes from a capitalistic framework of devaluation that prizes certain rubrics of value, value on how much a person can produce or quote unquote contribute to society to make them valuable. And so most of what disability law in the United States is, is um, concerned with is how much individuals cost the government or educational systems or healthcare systems. That is how they are talked about. They are not talked about in ways that look at holistic frameworks for the community and how every person contributes into the well-being of the community.
And so the way we even talk about disability and ideas of value are very much rooted in capitalism. And so I think, you know, part of how I connect my work to disparities right now that we're seeing is that we really are, are focused as a society in the United States on this idea of production and value. So disability politics has everything to do with this current crisis of COVID-19 and how that is becoming a political kind of um, debacle in the United States where we're talking about who are we willing to offer up to save the economy? I saw this incredible article by EPICS, the Education for uh, Parents, of Indian children with special needs. They're an organization, a prolific organization, indigenous organization that um, works with uh, individuals with special needs and their families. And this article said, was written by um, a person who identified as disabled and they said, you know, stop walking around and saying, oh, it's only the old people or the immune compromised or these type of vulnerable, it's only those people that we have to worry about and just very much kind of marginalizing them further. And they're saying, hello, that's us you're talking about. We are human beings and we deserve to live. I mean, I can't believe we even have to have these conversations. You know, this is what capitalism does. And when we see people making this public health crisis and approaching it like, oh, it's just a small group of people that are impacted. Those are our elders. Those are our grandparents. Those are our, our children with difference. These are all the most vulnerable in our society who we are charged to care for. We cannot sit here and honestly say that this is not, that we're not employing this capitalist colonial rubric of value. So I mean, when we even think about how we approach our discussions to talk about disparities and talk about this crisis, many people are coming from it with an already settled view of capitalism that they may not even be aware that they hold or carry or perpetuate. That's uh, some really important points that you're bringing up. It reminds me of some of the conversations I've also seen around this time as to the way that the difference is presented within the, the pandemic is, you know, some people have talked about essential workers and stuff as well, where others are like, are they essential? Who's essential and who is expendable, right? And then in addition to that, who are expendable populations? in the way that people approach this. And on one hand, we have to look at the role of the state, but also the larger consciousness of society and the way, you know, the, set, the attitudes and the sentiments and the, that people have, that reveals how we view in this society people from those groups or, or, or within those identities. They're not seen as part of the society. They're, no. they're, they're othered in particular ways to identify them as expendable. I mean, that's what I'm kind of hearing from what you're saying and kind of what I'm, I'm observing as well within the, this current situation. You just had me thinking about how you're talking about essential workers, right? So capitalism really promotes this idea of legible people who contribute to society, right? Who maintain the profit and maintain, and then there's the expendable people, the people who do the labor. And right now what you're talking about in terms of 
essential workers. I mean, I know lots, even have relatives who are being forced to work in fast food restaurants right now in the United States. They have been denied the privileges in their life to go to pursue academia because of all the systemic inequalities that we see in the United States. You know, this again, this is a structure that prevents people from actually pursuing a life that um, meets their needs in many ways. And so we have lots of individuals whose life and whose families' lives and their money and all their resources require them to be um, working on the front lines right now. For example, I have a relative who is um, working in the fast food industry and the owner of the business is refusing to let her wear a face mask to protect herself, even though she's coming into contact with all these people because he says that she, they don't want to scare away the customers because the customers will think she's sick. You know, this is an example of how frontline essential workers who are forced if they want to maintain any kind of social services they get from the state and have to continue their work because if they quit under these conditions, it's considered voluntary. It's not considered being laid off. You know, there's all these mechanisms, structural mechanisms that lock people into spaces that continually discriminate against them and exploit them and puts their health at risk. I mean, it's not even a, a matter of choice for them. And so this is very much a way that structural inequality and structural violence makes a society that is disabling towards um, expendable, quote unquote, expendable populations. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, kind of on those lines as well, if maybe you, you mind sharing um, some other examples of how this plays out in education, because I feel like, when I think about just kind of even my own experience, like part of schools is you end up spending so much time in them and, and the way that things are structured in there. Like I, I realized later on when I did have the opportunity to keep going to uni, it was such a different <laughs> history than what I was taught before. And I kept thinking, man, like I barely got in and I barely made it through, but I did, but I also can see how it's in the reason why is because people are being kept out continuously. And then I was like, man, if I would have had just my primary secondary education to go off of, like, even though they're not like explicitly teaching me things, the way that folks are segregated in, let's say special ed or the way certain languages are questioned or normalized or other processes within the school, like you're, you're learning stuff, right? It's just kind of the indirect learning about where people fit within society. I'm wondering if maybe you could give some examples too within the work that you're doing to, to some of these issues. Right. So, um, yeah, we just have to recognize, first of all, that, you know, you and I are very privileged as Indigenous people to be in the institution, to be um, academics. I always feel like, you know, just living here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, I recognize that I'm really privileged to have this opportunity um, to pursue my education in this way and to be supportive because so many people I know who have worked very hard, you know, there's always this rhetoric that, you know, um, if you work hard, you get, you get what you need. That's not true. That's a lie. Lots of people work hard, but there's so many systemic problems that have prevented them. You know, our relatives maybe get sick or else, you know, we have disparities at home that we can't, we have to work, you know, two, three jobs and go to school and be a parent all at the same time. It is hard to be an indigenous person in the academic space. 
Um, and I think that you and I can both like resonate with that. I think even though uh, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, they don't have common core curriculum, that's a, that's a big kind of issue in the United States right now. We have common core curriculum that puts forward this idea that all children should know all the same things at one given time in their life. And that in itself is a very oppressive and capitalistic model of what counts as knowledge and who is valid and legible and who is deserving of certain resources or attention or supports for them to continue on. Um, so in the United States, when I look at uh, special education, you, they have made some really great movements towards inclusive education, um, but we still see the type of segregation the physical geospatial segregation of individuals with difference from with outside of their their learning in their community right their other um, their peers and the same thing kind of happens here in Aotearoa New Zealand so I mean even though New Zealand is much more progressive in, in many ways they don't have common core they have more of a holistic framework of raising children and approaching education that's much more um student-centered and child-led and i'm going to be quite honest i um acknowledge maori initiatives in that way and really putting forward these different frameworks of educational models with their um, immersion schools and the creation of their indigenous schools and really putting forward a whole different paradigm of what education looks like that fulfills the whole wellness of children. So, but we still have those disparities here as well in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We still have special day schools where children are uh, segregated away from the rest of their peers, right? And that you have to, you know, up, you have to meet this model of criteria. There's still a model of criteria here of that's predicated on a hierarchy, right? A hierarchy of what someone can do, this idea of ability and inability, right? Um, and so we still see those disparities here where children are, are segregated away. Um, it's very challenging for children who are on the autism spectrum, who have different needs, who may not meet all the criteria that many of these day schools um, require to have your child enrolled, but you would end up mainstreaming your uh, child with autism and they would end up without the types of supports they need it because then they are also placed into a system that expects a certain type of performance or um, an inclusion that's predicated on, on the same idea of uh, quote unquote normative politics, right? And so that's another kind of structural inequality in that children here, even though they may be mainstreamed and they, they have this neoliberal kind of discussion about what inclusion is, it's also very limiting in a way because they are denied um, kind of the, the supports they need to thrive in those environments as well. And so this is how inequality kind of manifests itself and really kind of hidden and concealed ways in which it's really difficult sometimes to unpack because the rhetoric is saying we're doing this it's inclusion they're here with their, but where's the actual support when we're thinking about equitable education we're really thinking about the whole community unit we're thinking about the wholeness of everyone and how they all operate at different levels different contributions different ways to create a well-rounded holistic community
And I think that's what we really need to be looking at when we look at inclusive education. It's, it's dismantling the hierarchies of knowledge. It's dismantling the idea of ability and inability. And it's really focusing on people's um, contributions that make up the wellness and wholeness of the community. It, it reminds me of when we look at any issues of like inequality um, at best, you might get people to acknowledge disparity or underprivileged is one of the terms I remember hearing. Uh, oppressive is, is like a little bit more radical for some people and they, they'd rather say, oh, underprivileged or minority rather than saying kind of oppressed groups or peoples. But then what's even harder is to get people to say, well, wait a minute, if somebody is underprivileged, that means somebody is overprivileged. Like mm -hmm. you create one by the other. And as you're sharing uh, the way you, I really love how you've, you've um, explain that because it it makes me think you know as well like while we disable certain bodies we're enabling another body yes right based off of a very problematic and narrow standardized model that is efficient and beneficial only to the the top of the hierarchy the, the capitalist within uh, and particularly within our context you know within settler colonial nation states and if you do not fit then you do not have value of production to be exploited for the the top of that chain. I think you really clearly explained it in a way that's kind of helped me kind of see it in different ways too, which is great. Okay. Yeah, no, I was thinking, you know, I was having this chat the other day about, because I'm writing about assessment right now, and I'm trying to think about what different models of assessment we can have when we're actually looking at providing accommodation and need for individuals. And I really believe that assessment should happen on a community level. How well is the community doing? Instead of looking at all the individuals, because if we really are looking at inclusion in the way that I just described and thinking about how everyone fits as like, let's say like a puzzle piece into the larger scope of the community. We, when we're thinking about assessment, we need to really pull away from this kind of individualized way of looking at people based on those hierarchies, based on those benchmarks. We really need to look at um, the way the community is thriving, if we are looking at everyone as a whole and we're thinking about education as a whole, if the community is doing well, we are still looking at individual need. We are still looking how we can support individuals and how we can, you know, encourage them to pursue their interests. You know, right now, so much of, especially with, with, with children with autism, there's always this discussion of how they have obsessions, right? It's, it's described as obsessive behavior. Some children, in my view, are experts at certain things. And instead of forcing them to kind of flatten out and go within this whole kind of system that, that, that expects them to know everything, like everything, like everyone else, you know, this one size fits all model, we should help develop these specialized individuals who are interested in something they love and enjoy and let them become experts in that field, whatever it is. And to me, if we create experts in a well-rounded community, we have a whole well-rounded community, community of experts and it really dismantles 
this type of, you know, hierarchical um, system in which assessment is predicated on. And the challenge that we have is, is that when we look at assessment in terms of the community, we're still supporting need and accommodations for individuals to pursue whatever their interests are. But if we're looking at assessment in terms of the community, we would see some more of these other structural inequalities like underfunding, um, discrimination, systemic racism. We would see the way that structural violence is embedded in all these other systems, which is why it's so hard for people who hold all the power to look at the community as a whole because they want to distract us. They want to keep us busy by thinking it's all an individual failure. And that is another mechanism of capitalism. That is another, you know, strand of the disability politics that says, you know, um, it's, it's all about the individual. It's all about the individual failure. You know, it's a collective issue. So I think when we start thinking about assessment and thinking about the wholeness of the community in terms of education, in terms of inclusive education, we, we are actually addressing structural violence and disparities that are already there, but that people are so scared to touch because they're huge issues. It would require that we transform our entire society. And of course, imperialism, you know, empire, uh, capitalism, colonialism does not want us to transform it. It keeps us busy by thinking it's all about the individual self, you know, and I think that's where we really have to um, start kind of looking at the bigger picture sometimes. This is why interdisciplinary work matters. This is why it's important for different people in different academic spaces to talk about things. You know, I'm always working within these spaces where no one wants to talk about disability and we don't know how to. To me, that is a, um, a structural type of violence and a, a failure for us as academics to actually see how disability politics plays out across all these very violent spaces of our lives and how they're all fundamentally connected. Yeah, that's the other component, right? Like that by, by shifting this focus towards, you know, actually valuing individuals because they're, they have an important role within a community um, is going to be beneficial for the whole. And I think that's the thing that's off, that's a blind spot right, that people have a hard time seeing be because of the things that you've mentioned, um, but it'll benefit others. Because I think about even just the schooling system, those who would be kind of categorized uh, within the normative standard, it's not working for all of them either, <laughs> you know, like there's uh, push outs and, 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 um, and kicked out, you know, kind of folks who are also kind of uh, turned into kind of expendable to varying degrees, right, there's a spectrum of that. And I think that's the other thing that uh, you got you got me thinking about as well of how by by shifting that like having um, interactions and relationships with a broader community and broader spectrum of diversity and difference actually helps reveal blind spots that we have which can only strengthen right like I think about even ecosystems right like mm -hmm. they're they're strong in their diversity right and you can't have symbiotic relationships with the same uh, kind of you know like it has to be through difference and so. I think that's the other thing um, that you're really highlighting there that that will is ultimately more beneficial, I think. And also the, you know, uh, this individualistic ego centered focus is, is also uh, a way of kind of having a one way accountability, right, of the of the individual. But the individual is usually the marginalized, right, the exploited to varying degrees, because when it comes to power, 
often they escape accountability and any responsibility to the fact that we share a world together, whether we like it or not, right? We, we share this earth, we share regions, we share communities, um, and we can continue to pretend that we're not connected um, and, uh, you know, in this kind of crabs in a bucket system, or we can actually say, well, wait a minute, like that system's created, that, that bucket's created. There's a whole different way of doing things. And I'm wondering as we, you know, kind of uh, wrap up so much great stuff that you've shared, if um, maybe there's uh, something that uh, along these lines of kind of the, the alternative that, that has always kind of been there as well, um, but hasn't, but has been obviously <laughs> pushed out and kept out, if you're willing to share a little bit around that. And um, I guess an entry point to beginning journeys for uh, different pathways. And if you have any suggested resources or things for listeners as well, of where they can begin to look at, you know, areas that can help shift and expand and broaden um, our possibilities in our current moment. Oh, right. Thank you. So I think um, some of my current work that I do in my PhD program is looking at uh, the net storytelling that takes up concepts and perspectives of difference that exist outside the framework of disability. And when we go back to our traditional stories, um, we really are being given another lens to see the world through and to understand how our ancestors and how um, our philosophical teachings have positioned us to see other ways. And this is why, you know, assimilation and removal from our knowledge systems was such an important um, tactic of settler colonial violence. It wanted to sever and replace those modes of knowing. So I, for me, I always say, um, if we can go back to our stories and just sit with them. And I love stories and I love thinking about them because they present new ways of thinking about things. And when we apply them to our current moment, that they make sense and they still make sense of the world, even in our current situation. And I think in my work, I'm returning to some of um, these stories that I've heard and I, and I don't know how old they are. You know, I have no idea how old these are. These, a lot of our stories carry all these types of um, morals and values and portray a different lens of thinking through things. And most of our work as indigenous people and through our storytelling was to create this critical thinking. It was a mode to create, you know, critical thought of who we are and how we exist in the world. You know, some people say they, they conflate it with religion or they say, oh, it's a, you're turning back to old ways. You know, no, our traditional stories taught us to carry forward certain cultural kind of philosophical um, treasures that have existed since time immemorial, but they were fundamentally purposed for us to think critically as people. That is an indigenous tradition to reflect, to think, and to be accountable. And so they are applicable in this moment and across our lives. And so I think um, I would encourage people to pick up books authored by indigenous people. You know, I have such, we have such a difficult problem right now with um Navajo philosophy for example so in my research I'm trying to write about Navajo philosophy and so many of our our our, our books on philosophy are written by white anthropologists you know what do we do when our representations and our philosophical histories and stories are all transferred to us by non-native people that's a problem so my starting point for people who want to know about this is pick up a book 
by a Navajo person talking about Navajo philosophy. And it seems very obvious and self-evident, but this is how we are, are speaking for ourselves and articulating our own knowledges. And we're, act, we're exercising our self-determination and our sovereignty to represent ourselves and to, per, to perpetuate this um, discourse of critical thinking and reflection, because that's really what we're after. We're not after to write books to become famous and to publish and to gain prestige in the academy or save a narrative of our, our um, disappearing race, right? There's all this, all these anthropologists wrote about us because they were worried we were going to disappear from the face of the earth. We're still here. We're still fighting this system of devaluation, this deficit model, this current ongoing assimilation. And really, we really want to just continue to perpetuate this call to action to be critical thinkers, think critically in this moment, um, and and support one another. And that means reading and supporting other Indigenous authors and their scholarship. Oh, awesome! Thank you so much. I think that's a you know really great advice, especially you know as we think about how much stuff has been normalized with this the system. There, you know, we start looking back. <laughs> Um, in time, um, there's a much bigger realm of diversity that, that we can see um, in looking at some of these stories of, of different points of understanding the world that we're in. And I think about some of the, the work that I've done with, uh, with Tongan folks and, and even just people of the Moana generally, like there's this constant saying of like, we walk backwards into the future where it's like the because the depth of time in the past is so large it gives us uh, the the biggest realm of possibilities as we look to the future and it's not this we're going back it's how does this knowledge inform the possibilities of kind of broadening out of this narrow <laughs> um, view like this this whole realm of possibilities that um, is out there. And I think, uh, yeah, just really, really great points. I really appreciate your generosity and sharing uh, your time and, and knowledge. Ahehe and kia ora. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.